Welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode number 63. From our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you. And a special edition of the podcast this week as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the journey of Apollo 11, the first to land on the moon. We'll have some special guests this time around, including NASA historian Bill Berry, astronaut Terry Vertz, and author Robert Curson. We remind you that the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 50 years ago this week, what many would argue is the greatest achievement in human history took place as two men walked on the moon and then returned safely to Earth. The accomplishment took place less than a decade after a time when our space program couldn't reliably send a satellite into orbit. But inspiration often leads to innovation. Apollo 11 marked the fulfillment of a challenge laid forth by a leader who saw the value of setting the bar high. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. The successes of the Mercury and Gemini programs paved the way for Apollo, but NASA's confidence and timetable were dealt a severe blow when a fire during a test of Apollo 1 claimed the lives of astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. After working to correct the problems that led to those deaths, Americans returned to space in the fall of 1968 with an orbital flight and then fast-tracked a crucial trip to the moon for Apollo 8 for Christmas of that traumatic year. That mission was chronicled by author Robert Curson in his book, Rocket Man. The fact that this flight in December of 1968 was every bit and perhaps even more high risk than the flight to the moon that featured the landing just seven months later. There was so much at stake for not only the astronauts, but for the space program itself. The space program itself and for the country itself, because remember, 1968, you can make a very powerful argument, was one of the worst years in our country's history. Uh, you have the assassinations of Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy. You have violence in the streets, including in my hometown of Chicago at the Democratic Convention. You have 15,000 dead Americans in Vietnam. It seems that the whole country is divided against itself. Nobody can come together, it seems, on anything. And yet, um, at the very end, in the final hours of this terrible year, um, humanity is going to try, try something it's never tried before, and that's uh, to leave its home planet and to arrive at a new world, the moon. Well, and all of this happening on the heels of the biggest tragedy the space program had experienced at that time, uh, the fire on the launch pad of Apollo 1 that killed three astronauts, and then also the failure of Apollo 6. That's right. Um, Apollo 1, you, you lose three uh, heroic astronauts on, on the launch pad uh, during a test, not even the launch. And that is almost enough to derail NASA right there. They have to go through congressional hearings, and um, everybody is traumatized by the event. And then you have, uh, as you point out, Apollo 6, which is just the second test of the Saturn V rocket, the only machine powerful enough to deliver men to the moon. And in its second test, it fails catastrophically. 
the next time they're going to fly the Saturn V is not an unmanned test to try to work out the problems on Apollo 6. It's going to be Apollo 8 uh, with three men aboard, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. And they're not going into Earth orbit only. They're not going 853 miles above the Earth, which is the current altitude record at the time. They're going to go 240,000 miles away to the moon. Let's talk about the individuals, because I was fascinated to learn more about them. And start with Frank Borman, who was a, a bit of an enigma in the space program, in that he, he didn't join, he didn't want to become an astronaut for the traditional reasons. For him, it was about competition and especially beating the Russians. It really was. And Frank Borman was uh, considered perhaps the finest of NASA's astronauts, or one of the finest at least at the time. But he was very um, focused on defeating the Soviet Union in the space race. And you have to remember at the time, um, space is seen as the ultimate battlefield. Um, the superpower that controls space can also control it for military reasons. They, you know, if you can control space, you can put soldiers in space, you can put military bases on the moon. There's really no end to the potential destruction one side can wreak on the other. And Borman sees this um, space race as the ultimate expression of the Cold War, and he's in it strictly to beat the Soviet Union. He is not um, enchanted by space or the idea of exploration or the thrill of rockets. He wants to defeat the Soviet Union. In many ways, the polar opposite was uh, Jim Lovell, who had dreamed of space flight from the time he was a young man and, and as tightly wound as Frank Borman could be at times. Uh, Lovell, as you point out in the book, was the guy that you want to be going to space with or off on a fishing trip. Yeah, he's, he is one of the sweetest, um, most uh, easygoing guys you'll ever run across. He grew up very poor in Milwaukee um, without a father. His father had been killed in a car accident when Jim was just a little boy. But he always dreamed of exploration. Even as a young boy, he loved the idea of exploring and pushing into the unknown. And as soon as he became aware of rockets in high school, he built his own rocket. And at the Naval Academy, when others were writing their um, graduation thesis about classic naval battles or naval strategy, Lovell was already writing about uh, rockets and what it would mean to send men into space. So to him, it was a very romantic proposition. Make no mistake, he also understood and believed in the importance of beating the Soviet Union in the space race. But for him, it was a lot about exploration and about pushing into the unknown. We're talking with Robert Curson, author of Rocket Men, The Daring Odyssey of Apollo 8, and the astronauts who made man's first journey to the moon. The third member of the crew, uh, for me, was the most interesting guy because I, I knew the least about him going into the book. That's Bill Anders, who initially was very disappointed to be part of this Apollo 8 crew because he thought it would cost him and knew it would cost him a chance to eventually walk on the moon. Right. Anders is five years younger than Lovell and Borman. And uh, this uh, Apollo 8 is, meant to, is going to be his first space flight. He's training as a lunar module pilot, which means that, according to his calculations, he's got about an 80% or better chance of walking on the moon someday. But part of what makes the Apollo 8 flight so thrilling is that its original mission was changed suddenly in the summer of 1968 from a low-Earth orbital mission to the fir mankind's first journey to the moon. Now, that meant Apollo 8 was going to go without a lunar module. They were not going to land on the moon. And that's part of what makes this trip so daring and so dangerous and so thrilling. But it also meant that Anders had to change responsibilities. He was not going to be flying a lunar module anymore. And that meant he knew that his chances of walking on the moon had dropped to between slim and none. So at first, he's very discouraged by it. But then it occurs to him 
that going on Apollo 8 means he's going to be one of the first three human beings ever to leave Earth and one of the first three human beings ever to arrive at a new world at the new moon at a moon at the moon. And so this becomes thrilling to him. He loves the idea of exploration. He's a scientist. He's a nuclear engineer in addition to a top-rate fighter pilot. So for him, the idea of being the first and, and getting to explore this new world is um, a thrill beyond compare. And he even tells his wife that he calculates there's about a one-third chance that he won't make it back from the moon. Uh, but he, he earns some toughness along the way from his dad. Can you share a little of that incredible story about his father? Yeah, his father was a real war hero. He had been on a ship called the Panay, and this was during um, peacetime. But uh, the Panay had been um, attacked by Japanese fighter planes, and it's it's a neutral, it's an American ship, and it's a neutral um, party. Um, they're attacked, and his, Andrew's father acts so heroically. Um, he's writing out orders in blood because he can't speak and certainly would have received the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions. I think this is in 1937, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he, he behaved in, a, in an unbelievably courageous way and saved so many lives. Uh, and this was made a very um, profound impression on his son, young Bill, who was nearby at the time. Bill was born in Hong Kong. And so uh, this is something that stays with young Bill Anders, and lives with him even into the time when he goes into space. And even though he was a, a younger guy and, and Lovell and Borman knew each other, they'd spent nearly two weeks together on the Gemini 7 flight, but they grew to respect Bill Anders' work and ability very quickly. Oh, they very much did. And you're right. Um, Lovell and Borman flew aboard Gemini 7 for 14 days in a capsule the size no, no bigger than the front seat of a Volkswagen Beetle. This was an unbelievable flight. It was done to see just how long astronauts could endure a flight. And when they got off um, onto the recovery ship, Lovell said, we'd like to announce our engagement. <laughs> so Lovell and Borman, even though they were quite different um, in terms of personality, really loved each other, and they were perfectly suited to fly together. When they met Anders, even though Anders was younger and would be making his first space flight about Apollo 8, they connected with him immediately, respected him, and soon enough, Borman believed that he had in his crewmates for Apollo 8, the finest astronaut crew NASA had ever assembled. Well, he certainly had that, and then he had the technical expertise behind him as well, because this book is also a story about the people behind the scenes, the engineers, the aeronautical experts, uh, the people uh, like Chris Kraft, um, Deke Slayton, and so many, many others who pulled this all together, as you mentioned, in just four months' time, and, and that figure that stands out, the fact that man had never traveled more than 853 miles from the Earth, and now we're going to go a quarter of a million miles. It's remarkable to think about that exponential leap forward. It's unbelievable. Normal space flights would take 12 to 18 months for training and preparation. This one rushed to the launch pad in four months for thrilling reasons, which I go into in the book. And I try not to make the book too technical by any means. It's really a human story. But they are taking such risks, not just in how short a time they have, four months to prepare for this whole thing. But they're, take, they're going in all kinds of uh, unknowns. Everything on this flight is going to be for the first time. And they're going, remember, just to orbit. They're not going to land. So they're going without a lunar module. And that meant that they're going without a backup engine because the lunar module also serves as a backup engine. It would be this thing that saved Apollo 13 and Lovell on his next flight. But here, Apollo 8, for all the risks and everything, going without a backup engine, they're going on the Saturn V for the first time men are ever going to go aboard, and only the third flight ever 
after the second flight failed so badly in its second test. Everything is unknown. And when you go and listen to other astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, talk about Apollo 8, they speak about it in reverential terms. They sound different when they talk about Apollo 8 than even when they talk about their own flight. And that's a big part of the reason is because when Apollo 11 went and they landed on the moon, they already knew so much of it could be done because Apollo 8 proved it. But when Apollo 8 went, nobody knew that any of that could be done with men aboard. And there were so many technical challenges along the way that they were undertaking for the first time, escaping Earth's orbit, getting themselves uh, into the moon's orbit, and all of those so precise that it one minor mistake either way, and you find yourself uh, trapped in space or forever circling the moon. That's absolutely true. And remember, on top of that, not only were they taking these risks of smashing into the moon or being trapped in lunar orbit or flying off into solar orbit forever, they are going on Christmas Eve and Christmas. They're going to be orbiting the moon. So as NASA's chief pointed out when he screamed in fury at the idea of this mission, if anything goes wrong and these guys die out there, no one will ever look at the moon or at Christmas the same again. Yeah, and you include a letter in the book that's wonderful from a citizen who wrote into NASA urging them to postpone for a month or so because of the possibility of Christmas always bearing the memory of the loss of these astronauts. Yes, he, he begged them not to do it, not just because Christmas was at risk, but because so much else had gone wrong in this terrible year of 1968. It was one horror after another after another, and here they're going to go on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at the end of one of the worst years in our country's history. And if something goes wrong, then the man points out, what does that mean for the rest of us? One of the most thrilling parts of the book, and as I told you, I, I knew how it ended, but I was still on the edge of my seat, was this important maneuver called the, the TEI. Uh, and I believe that's what enabled them to escape the moon's gravitation or the moon's orbit and begin their trip back to Earth. And even though I knew how it ended, uh, I was hanging on every word. Yes, that's one of the most dangerous maneuvers. Many people in mission control believe that the single most risky maneuver, because to get out of lunar orbit and head back home, the engine, has, their single engine that they have has to relight and it has to perform near perfectly. And if the thing doesn't relight again or it has problems, they're trapped forever in lunar orbit or close to forever. Ultimately, they'll probably crash into the lunar surface. But that single engine has to relight and they have to gain enough speed to escape lunar gravity and head back home. And nobody knew if that would happen because, again, nobody had ever tried any of this before. Well, there was the science, there was the exploration, there was paving the way for the Apollo 11 landing seven months later. But then there was the wonder that uh, perhaps nobody could have planned for that they saw when they emerged from the dark side of the moon and saw the Earth for the first time and captured in that incredible photograph by Bill Anders. Right. Anders was charged with the photographic responsibility for the trip, and they trained in these four months so hard on studying the moon, to photograph the moon, to scout for possible landing sites for what would be Apollo 11, and to study the moon. And, you know, they are the first humans to lay eyes on the far side of the moon. But on the fourth revolution, um, Borman changed the orientation of the spacecraft, and the men could see this lunar, gray, featureless lunar horizon set against a black infinity of space. But all of a sudden, a blue jewel begins to rise over the lunar horizon. And they realize suddenly that that's Earth. It's Earth rise. And it's the single most beautiful thing any of them has ever seen. And they scramble for their cameras. Um, Anders gets a beautiful telephoto lens with a color film magazine. 
and he snaps off pictures of the first Earthrise ever witnessed by human beings, and it changes them fundamentally. And when they spoke to me about what it was like to see Earthrise, it was so beautiful and so profound the way they described it. Each of them was changed from it. And, of course, we all know that photograph. It's You can make a good argument. It's the single most famous photograph and maybe most important photograph ever taken. And along with that photograph, what is most memorable and continues 50 years later about that flight is what happened in their broadcast, their Christmas time broadcast. And I was fascinated to read that Frank Borman wanted no part of doing any of these broadcasts. But for this one in particular, they reached out to the astronauts from Houston and said, do whatever you want. Everything had been planned down to the last detail, but the broadcast that made this flight so famous and such an important landmark in human history, they came up with on their own. They did, and that, Borman laughs about it today, 50 years later. He still can't believe it. He said, can you imagine now if you're going to be speaking to more people than had ever listened to a human voice at once? And that's what they were told. Nearly a third of the world's population would be tuning in. It would go through 100 committees and all kinds of oversight, but they just left it to the astronauts. And um, ultimately, the astronauts, with the help of some friends, came up with what they thought was the perfect and appropriate thing, but they didn't tell anyone. They just wrote it on the fireproof paper, put it in their flight plane. Their wives didn't know. NASA didn't know. Nothing. But on the ninth revolution, while they were speaking to nearly a third of the world's population, um, they read from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, they said... And it moved people across the world. Nobody could believe what they were hearing. This was an origin story. And it spoke to so many of the world's religions and so many people in the world. It seemed the very most perfect thing to say for mankind's first trip away from home and first arrival at a new world. And after they were done speaking, it only took about a minute, a minute and a half for them to finish reading um, what they'd chosen. People all over the world streamed out of their homes and out of apartments, out of stores, out of saloons all around the world, and they looked toward the sky, many of them sobbing from the emotion of the moment, knowing they could not see Apollo 8 from the ground, of course, but looking all the same. It was a profound, incredible moment. And you could go on uh, YouTube right now and watch a video of it and hear them speak, and it's as powerful today as it was 50 years ago. I was tearing up reading it in the book when I got to that, and I was so moved by the story you share in the book of uh, legendary conductor Leonard Bernstein. Yes, he was very uh, suspect of the space program. He thought it cost way too much money, that it was not doing nearly the good that could be done otherwise with the money. Uh, he was um, very much against even watching this thing, but he was at a party where the uh, broadcast was being watched, and reluctantly he, he um, forced himself kind of out of the corner of his eye to watch and was um, reduced to tears, as millions of people were. There was no escaping that something... Um, unbelievable had happened, something almost impossible, and something that would never, ever happen again. No matter how many more space flights were taken, nobody would ever arrive for the first time again. And it, uh, it overwhelmed him. We're talking with Robert Curson, his wonderful book, Rocket Men, and uh, Tom Wolf coined the phrase, the right stuff. And we often talk about it here as birthdays roll around. It's incredible uh, how many of these Apollo astronauts are alive. And this entire crew in uh, their 80s and early 90s still alive. And to me, that's a a mark of, of the stuff that they were made of. It really is. And, you know, one of the things I've discovered when I uh, first began work on this book and I first started to meet with the astronauts at their homes were that 
was that the importance of their wives in the story and the families. So these uh, three women they married. By the way, the Apollo 8 crew is the only crew in Apollo or Gemini uh, in which all the marriages survived. Marriage was a very challenging proposition mm. for astronauts. It was a very difficult life. But these three marriages survived, and they talked to me. It seemed almost impossible for them to talk about their success as astronauts or what they accomplished without crediting their wives first and foremost. And that became a part of the story I hadn't expected at first, but it was a wonderful part. And you really get to see just what these guys were made of, not just as astronauts, but they, they had the right stuff as gentlemen also. I, I have not, it's, it's hard for me to imagine in my life meeting three nicer, more ordinary guys, if you can believe it, but they really did have the right stuff all the way around. Author Robert Curson, his wonderful book on Apollo 8 entitled Rocket Man. Apollo 9 and 10 in the late winter and spring of 1969 would provide vital tests and a dress rehearsal for the lunar landing that summer. That's next after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super-regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, Four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on a proper heading. The massive Saturn V rocket sent Apollo 11 roaring into space on July 16th, and the crew would enter lunar orbit three days later. On July 20th, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin began their descent to the moon's surface in the lunar module designated as Eagle, while Michael Collins remained in orbit in the command module. Contact right. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Hours later, Armstrong, the 38-year-old test pilot from Ohio, made his way down the ladder of the LEM and into history. I'm going to step off the LEM now. Longtime NASA historian Bill Barry looks back on the historic journey of Apollo 11. What's going on officially uh, for NASA to commemorate this event? Well, we've got a whole series of uh, events that are going on, both at uh, the various 
NASA centers around the country. Uh, but sort of the, the focal point for uh, the major celebration will be a three-day uh, event on the National Mall that we're doing in collaboration with the National Air and Space Museum. So that will be a, um, a, a big display event that will be both inside the museum and outside the museum. Uh, and the, the Smithsonian's got some uh, some surprises up their sleeve for some uh, fun programming they're going to, going to do in the evenings there. Uh, so that'll be great. Um, NASA itself is doing a, a coast-to-coast TV broadcast on uh, the afternoon of July 19th, so from 1 to 2.30 on uh, July 19th, we'll have a 90-minute uh, broadcast that will have uh, remote uh, locations at the National Mall from that celebration there with uh, astronaut Mike Collins from the Apollo 11 crew, but also um, we'll be going remote to uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, where they built the Saturn V rocket that got us to the moon, and of course Johnson Space Center in Houston, and uh, Wapakoneta, Ohio, uh, Neil Armstrong's hometown, uh, and uh, possibly some other locations as well that we're negotiating with. So there, there those, those run-up events, and then of course the uh, anniversary itself falls on Saturday, July 20th, and uh, we'll be um, rebroadcasting, uh, you know, 50 years uh, real in real time plus 50 years the the uh, the, um, the landing and the first moonwalk, uh, both on our social media and, and web channels and on NASA TV, and um, also we'll be collaborating with the Kennedy Center here in Washington D.C. for a major uh, concert on that Saturday night. So. Uh, lots of things happening uh, to, to mark this uh, golden anniversary of the first moon landing. That's wonderful. And and it highlights the scope of the operation that uh, this was um, not just uh, obviously the three men in the spacecraft or the people in Florida, but uh, crews all over the United States, engineers, scientists, mathematicians, uh, people really uh, all over the world when you take into account the people who were tracking the flight as well. Yeah, there. Um, by our count, there are about 400,000 people, just over 400,000 people involved in the mission worldwide, and that it, that did include um, um, folks at the tracking stations around around the planet, um, and uh, also some you know scientists around. There were uh, scientists who were um, involved in the. Um, decision about uh, you know what kind of samples to collect and the analysis of those samples after they came back. So literally hundreds of scientists around the world were sent uh, samples of the moon rocks after they came out of quarantine uh, to do analysis. And uh, about six months later in, in January 1970, they had a big conference to uh, compare all the results, uh, which is which is pretty interesting. But um, but even in the United States, uh, there were um, you know uh, 20,000 U.S. companies I mean, of course, the big giants like Boeing and and uh, Rockwell and North American and and Douglas and everybody else were involved in, in the, the program building these. But there were there were literally twenty thousand U.S. companies involved in uh, in the Apollo program. Um, I I should have checked, but um, I, I'm sure there were at least a few of those companies located in the in the great state of Maine. Um, so um, I I know there were there were several uh, in Massachusetts where I grew up. So. Uh, it's uh, it was a it was a widespread effort. Everybody knew somebody. The, 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 um, the Jack Leary, the guy who lived across the street from my family when I was growing up, uh, Mr. Leary was a local hero because he worked for a company that made little tiny precision gears. It's a small company that had 60, 60 employees, and they made small precision gears, some of which wound up in the Saturn V uh, booster. So he was he was my hero when I was a kid. <laughs> Well, and the focus is on Apollo 11, but it's interesting to look back and realize 
what an incredibly challenging and ambitious schedule NASA had in the six months prior to the moon landing with three trips, Apollo 8, 9, and 10, all laying the groundwork for the flight of Apollo 11. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right there, Rich. It's, um, it was... It was not only a very ambitious schedule, but but NASA was very lucky. Um, and those missions all went very well. We actually, you know, uh, in, you know, for planning purposes, the folks at NASA had assumed that at least one of those missions would would probably you know need to be either repeated or or there'd be some parts of that that have to redo on on some other mission. But but things went remarkably well on all of those missions, uh, and from late 1968 into early 1969. Um, and uh, you know we announced the crew of Apollo 11 um, in. Um, you know, January 1969, uh, and it was you know, that was the the plan was that they would be the the first that might have a chance to land on the moon. But as the spring of 1969 went along with Apollo 9 going well and then Apollo 10, it, it you know became clear that that in fact they were going to be the the first crew to attempt the landing, and and it became clear. But it, it could well have been you know Pete Conrad as the first mm. man on the moon if uh, if there'd been a problem and in, in that in that um, assignment had slipped to Apollo 12. I think it was Tom Wolfe who coined the phrase, the right stuff. And, and when you look at the longevity that so many astronauts have had, uh, not only three men living today who've walked on the moon, but but so many of those crews from uh, not just Apollo, but the Mercury flights, uh, so many of those guys live to be into their 80s and 90s. So clearly they uh, they did have some of the right stuff. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes that's a sort of magic. But uh, actually, I, I think part of it was... You know, the selection process, uh, particularly the Mercury Seven, and, uh, and and a little bit less so for their ones, but but they had every every possible biological system tested. Mm. Uh, so so they were in, in extraordinarily good health um, when they were selected as astronauts. And that probably helps uh, with the longevity question, but uh, also uh, you know there are guys who. Um, um, got good medical care. You know, most of them were military veterans, and and uh, and they also um, NASA. You know, we couldn't require them after they retired to come back to Houston for an uh, annual physical, but NASA gave every one of those guys an annual physical uh, for free every year um, because we wanted the data on how how you know their space experience uh, impacted their health. Uh, and for, for most of them, that uh, did well. So so they not only had the advantage of you know walking into the program with you know, um, generally, you know, good health to start with, but they were closely monitored um, after that. So then I think that probably, you know, contributed to the longevity. But, but yeah, you're right. There are, there are only a handful of folks left uh, who were, you know, flew in those Apollo missions. And um, sadly, uh, you know, many of them were passed from the scene just in the last couple of years. Mm. We're talking with NASA historian Bill Barry here on downtown. I, I was only 11 years old, but I was, I was a huge Fan. Uh, my mother let me stay up and watch, woke me up uh, to watch Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. Of all the things, my recollection as a little kid, of all the things that were scariest from a, uh, a layman's perspective at the time, because it had never been done before, it was the takeoff of the lunar module from the lunar surface. Was that, was that also, from the perspective of the people involved, the most challenging part of the operation? Um, well, you know, Rich, you and I are the same age, actually. <laughs> we both <laughs> when we landed on the moon as well. Um, and, 
uh, yeah, I, I remember it well, too. And, and uh, Actually, I managed to argue long enough with my parents that by the time they were finally getting ready to send me to bed, that they changed the schedule. Uh, for <laughs> Because originally the, the crew landed and they were supposed to sleep. I don't know how they expected that to happen. <laughs> that was the schedule. Um, and so my, my mom and dad, like, you go to bed, we'll wake you up at 2 in the morning when we're walking the moon. And uh, I, I argued with them for a long time. They finally, you know, by, by the time they, they were sent me off down the hall. <laughs> Walter Cronkite comes out and says, oh, they're going to move up the landing or the, the moonwalk. And so I get to stay up. Um, but anyway, um, I, I, there are a lot of, there were a lot of things that were, there were um, sensitive operations that we hadn't done. The launch from the surface was particularly critical because it relied on one rocket engine. Uh, and if that engine didn't work, um, you know, those guys were going to be stuck on the moon. Um, and, and there actually was a, a close call on that one. Uh, the switch that they needed, one of the, one of the switches they needed to, to flip to enable that engine to fire uh, broke. And the, the switch part of it broke off. And uh, Buzz Aldrin very very cleverly you know, pulled uh, a, a felt-tip pen out of his uh, pocket and stuffed it into the hole where the switch was and was able to move the switch with, with that. So, so they successfully got off the surface of the moon. Um, if you were to ask Neil Armstrong about it, I think he would have told you that the landing was probably the thing he was most concerned about. Well, because then he had to, he had to do some of that manually, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they uh, get that. There, there are a number of things that it's, it's, if you don't know the lingo and you don't know what's going on, um, and it, it kind of sounds like, you know, they're just you know landing on the moon, no big deal. Uh, but uh, they had some computer alarms that went off that that they weren't expecting, um, and those kind of raised the pucker factor. But the big problem was that um, they we didn't understand the gravity field of the moon quite as well as we as we would have liked at the time, and so the uh, the the Eagle lunar module was landing, landing along. It kind of missed the landing point and was going to land further down, down its path than, than had been planned. And where it was going to land actually wanted to be a big field full of boulders. Um, and so uh, Neil didn't want to land on a big field full of boulders. So as he's coming down, he sees that, that that's where they're heading. And uh, he basically levels off at you know, a couple hundred feet above the surface and and steps on the gas pedal to go sideways, you know, literally hovering over the moon and going sideways uh, to find a clear spot to land on. And, and meanwhile, the fuel is ticking down, and, and they landed with, you know, with, you know, seconds of fuel remaining. Um, uh, and that, and that was that was probably the thing that was most um, the most critical thing I think uh, if you were to look at it. Uh, but again, you know, these guys are test pilots. They didn't. You know, if you're listening to the audio, you really don't get. You know that anybody was nervous about it. Just sort of seemed like, oh well, okay, these, you know. But uh, when they're they calling thirty seconds of fuel remaining, it was people in Houston were really nervous. As we look back and celebrate this fiftieth anniversary this summer, I know that NASA is always subject to the whims of politicians as well. But what is the future of manned space flight? Uh, well, you know, um, President Trump has uh, said that we're going back to the moon and then on to Mars. That's uh, the, the decision that we'd go back, that NASA would formally go on to Mars, has really been um, announced by the president, uh, President Bush, actually, back in the, uh, in 2003, and um, and the Congress approved that. So that's that's been our plan is that we would eventually get there. Um, there, you know, how, when are we going to do that is sort of a big question, and that's driven by how much of a budget NASA has. Um, and typically, we've been running at sort of the same budget level. We, you know, back in the Apollo days, 
when we had to build NASA, I mean, we had to build entire centers and we had to, you know, help colleges and universities build uh, faculties to get us the kind of people we needed to, to because, you know, there, there weren't any planetary geologists around mm. in, in the 1950s. So we had to, we helped you know, a lot of the NASA, the $25 billion that the U.S. spent on, on Apollo was spent not just on rockets and stuff, but it was a lot of it was building infrastructure. And so we've got that, that we now get that infrastructure, so we probably don't need as much now. But back in those days, you know, at, at the peak, uh, NASA was getting about 5% of the, the federal budget. Um, and, and the public, generally speaking, didn't, you know, thought that that was too much. Um, so that, that was likely to get cut back anyway. Uh, these days, NASA gets about one half, less than one half of 1% of the federal budget. So, you know, we, we produce a, a lot of great science and, and uh, inspiration uh, on a pretty limited budget these days. Uh, sending humans out to other planets is going to take a little more money. And uh, just yesterday, um, uh, the president uh, sent a budget amendment over to Capitol Hill for the next year's fiscal year budget for, so for the, the you know, spending year that starts October 1st this year. Uh, they added $1.6 billion to their request of uh, the Congress um, to accelerate our plans to land humans back on the moon by 2024. So that's that's the plan. We're going to land um, uh, the first people back on the moon on the south pole of the moon uh, near Shackleton Crater on the south pole of the moon uh, in 2024. And, and, uh, and assuming the Congress uh, approves that spending plan. Um, uh, it looks like we'll be on track to, to be able to meet that objective. Well, I, I hope this 50th anniversary hopes, uh, in some ways, helps to rekindle the passion that America had for this, not simply because of the science, but for what it did to uh, not only our nation, but to the world, coming together like we did perhaps at no other time in the summer of 1969. And if we can be reminded of that, maybe that will encourage people to be more supportive of this program, which I think is produce the greatest scientific achievement in human history. Yeah, Richard, I, I agree with you. I think, and I think the timing is good. You know, people are, you know, I, I, I detect anyway in my interactions with the public. And it's hard to tell here at NASA because we're all, we're all, <laughs> we're all giant fans of this stuff. But, uh, but when I interact with people in the public, I, I, you know, people are sort of hungry for, okay, we do, you know, it's been long enough. Let's, let's get to it. People have been inspired by you know, science fiction and and, uh, and superhero movies and whatever else that that they're you know they're watching and and, uh, and I think I think I think there's a an interest in in pursuing that and and you're exactly right. I mean, the impact of Apollo on um, on our society now is is hard to imagine how much different the world is and it, and it, the impact is so widespread that it, I don't think people sort of notice it. I mean, in terms of you know, the boost of the economy from mm-hmm. technology, from our complete changing of our understanding of the universe, because now, you know, based on the samples we brought back from the moon, we, we found out that in fact the moon and earth were formed by uh, the, you know, the proto earth being hit by a, 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 a planet the size basically of Mars now, uh, and that, that impact created what's now the Earth we live on and, and the moon that we, that we know. Um, and that, you know, that, that genesis story for Earth kind of changes our perspective on a lot of things uh, and, and changes our understanding of, of the universe. Um, and you know, there's this whole generation of people who um, you know, came, you know, like you and I who came of age during the Apollo era, but also people who come after who've grown up with the understanding that you know, if if we set a big goal for ourselves and apply the right resources uh, and stay organized and focused, there's no end of what we can accomplish. I mean, you know, how many times have you heard people say things like, "If we can put a person on the moon, why can't we, you know, fill in the blank?" Right. Um, 
that attitude, I think, is, uh, is, has had a profound effect on, on not only the United States, but also our whole world. Neil Armstrong passed away in 2012, but Aldrin and Collins are part of this year's anniversary celebration. And three men who walked on the moon, Charlie Duke, Dave Scott, and Harrison Schmidt, are still alive, along with Apollo veterans like Jim Lovell and Frank Borman. Astronaut Terry Verritz, who logged more than 200 days in space in the shuttle program and on the ISS, says that's no accident. It's a pretty highly selected group. Like, you, you can't become an astronaut without going through lots and lots of medical tests. So if you have, you know, any one of a number of medical conditions, you, you just won't get picked. So once you get to be an astronaut, the odds of living a long time are pretty good. Um, there, there are the effects of spaceflight, but... You know, the normal things that kind of kill you off, um, astronauts are mostly selected out of that population. So, yeah, guys, you know, Buzz and Charlie Duke is in great shape and Harrison Schmidt's in great shape. And um, a lot of these guys are, you know, there's there's not that many of them left, but they're living well and lots of energy. It's impressive. Five subsequent missions would result in moon landings and another 10 men would walk on lunar soil, with Gene Cernan being the last in December of 1972. Some may question the value of these explorations, but no one can doubt the incredible ingenuity, fortitude, and bravery of the men who made that journey and the thousands of men and women whose expertise made it possible. Fifty years later, the enormity of what they accomplished has not diminished. That giant leap from mankind remains a high-water mark for the inhabitants of planet Earth. That's our podcast for this week, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.